Hello, and welcome back to the UFO and Alien Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black. All along, I've been telling you it's up to you what you believe, and that's true. You should believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. In this episode, we have a real challenge. Most of you are already probably aware of the Travis Walton story. Hollywood made a major motion picture of the story, so many people already have an idea of what the truth is. Some people have already made up their minds on what the truth is. I'm a little slower to come to any conclusion. I'm going to tell you the story straight from Travis's own words, and at the end you will be in a better position to believe or not believe. Here we go. On Wednesday, November 5th, 1975, seven loggers went to work in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest near Snowflake, Arizona. They were Mike Rogers, Ken Peterson, John Gallette, Alan Dallas, Dwayne Smith, Steve Pierce, and of course, Travis Walton. After a long, hard day of thinning trees, they were heading home in a dirty brown and white 1965 International Double Cab with Boss Mike at the wheel. After bouncing around the rough road for a while, Travis noticed a light coming through the trees on the right, a hundred yards ahead. He thought it was the sun going down in the west, but then realized that the sun had already set about a half an hour ago. Maybe it was light from some hunter's camp, headlights or campfire. The other guys must have noticed it too, because the right side of the cab became silent. Now everyone in the cab is aware of the light. Mike doesn't have a clear view of it because he's driving, and he says, What do you guys see? Dwayne offers up, I don't know but it looked like a crashed plane hanging in a tree. When they got to the clearing where they had an excellent view, John cried out, Stop! Stop the truck! The truck skidded to a stop while Travis popped the door open for a better view. Alan exclaimed, My God! It's a flying saucer! Everyone is frozen still and quiet by the sight before them. Hanging in the air motionless, Below the treetops is a giant disc-shaped craft, 15 to 20 feet in diameter, and 8 to 10 feet thick. Travis describes it as two gigantic pie pans placed lip to lip, with the round bowl turned upside down on top. It had glowing yellow panels set into dull silver shape. There were no visible antenna or protrusions of the craft, no doors or windows, or even a sign of life. Everything seemed frozen. Then Ken broke the silence with, This is really happening. Only a second had passed since the truck stopped, and Travis wanted to get a closer look before it flew away, so he exited the vehicle and started walking toward the craft. The men in the truck were hollering for him to come back. Travis looked back towards them, and then continued until he was about six feet from being underneath the craft. He could barely hear audible sounds from the ship, humming, whirring clicking sounds, more felt than heard sounds. Then the sounds grew louder, and the ship began to vibrate. He crouched down behind a log and was rethinking his foolish move to get a closer look. He decided to make a run for the truck, and as he was rising from his crouched position, 
a bluish green beam of light shot out from underneath the disc and hit him in the head and chest. He described the bolt as a high voltage electrocution. And after that, he saw, heard, and felt no more. What the men in the truck saw was the beam hitting Travis and hurling him backward 10 feet. They booked it out of there, afraid the craft was after them. After nearly wrecking the truck on the unforgiving road, Mike slowed, looked back, and said, It doesn't look like it's after us. During this whole ordeal, the men in the truck were absolutely silent. Then they all started talking at once, screaming, arguing, crying, praying. Then some of them decided to go help Travis, but some didn't want to go back there. Who could blame them? This is a very confusing time for the crew. A lot of them were too scared to go back to the area to look for Travis. So Mike decided to make a fire for the ones that didn't want to leave and they could stay by the fire while the rest go back and look for Travis. But then they saw a camper truck and they decided, hey, there's a lot of hunters in the area with guns. Maybe we should get some of them to help us. They didn't find anybody. Then Mike thought he saw the craft rise up to the treetops and streak away at incredible speed. They were still standing arguing and scared and confused. Then Mike said firmly, This truck is going back. If you don't want to go along, get out and wait here. Nobody got out. They all went back. They searched the area where Travis was last seen. They had the headlights of the truck lighting the area, and Mike carried the only flashlight. They searched the area calling out Travis's name, but they came up empty. Maybe they were in the wrong area. They searched several areas. Maybe Travis tried to catch up to the truck, but there were no footprints in the soft dirt road, only the truck tire tracks. Finally, Mike said, Let's go. We're not doing any good here. They decided that they had to tell the police, but they didn't know what to tell them. Should they say anything about the UFO or just say that their friend was missing? So they all piled into the truck and drove to Heber, and the closest phone. When they finally got there, Ken was the one who went into the phone booth and dialed O for operator. When he came out, he said the deputy Ellison was on his way out and to meet him in the parking lot about a block away. So when the deputy arrived, he approached the truck at the driver's side where Mike was. He asked, okay, what's the problem here? Then Mike answered, well... A friend of ours is probably lost. At least, he might be lost. Anyway, I mean, he may be dead. Ellison, suddenly alert, he watched the faces of the others and asked for more details. At the same time, he's trying to get close to each of them to smell alcohol or marijuana, but he didn't smell anything. Mike was tripping over himself, trying to explain what had happened. He didn't know where to start. The deputy said, start at the beginning. Then everyone started talking at once. The deputy didn't interrupt them. He just let them go. And they told him about the UFO and Travis. Ellison called it in. He had County Deputy Glenn Flake check Travis's house to see if he was there. And they all waited for the sheriff and undersheriff to arrive in the county's four-wheel drive vehicle. Sheriff Gillespie showed up around an hour later and asked for the story. Sheriff Gillespie didn't notice any signs of alcohol 
and studied the crew as he listened intently to the story. When they finished, he remarked that it was a crazy story, but he didn't see any reason to disbelieve them. Then he said, We've got to go out there and see if we can find this guy. Three of them said, No way. They were not going out there. Ken, Alan, and Mike went. They searched for an hour in the dark and didn't find a sign of Travis. Afterward, the sheriff said they would send a larger group out in the morning and that they had to contact next of kin. Mike went with Deputy Copeland to tell Travis's mother about the incident. After waking up his mom and letting her know, she asked for a ride so she could let the rest of the family know. He even alerted Travis's older brother, Dwayne, in Phoenix to get up there. Travis's mom drove over to Snowflake and told Travis's older brother, Don, who lived with his wife and two little girls. When she told him what happened, Don didn't believe it. He thought it was a crazy story to cover up some kind of foul play. The next morning, the search party was formed. The Sheriff's Department, U.S. Forest Service men, and the Navajo County Search and Rescue Team had gathered at the Exxon Station. Also, Travis's family and the work crew, all except Steve Pierce, who was still suffering from a state of shock and refused to ever go back into those woods, and for now was refusing to leave his house. They fueled up and drove to the area of the incident, and the sheriff gave instructions to the searchers. The family and work crew were not asked to join the search, so they searched on their own. At one point, one of the forest servicemen grabbed Dwayne and asked where they hid the body. Dwayne denied killing anybody and said he'd take a lie detector test to prove it. The rest of the crew added to this sentiment. After the first day of searching, they found absolutely nothing. A Forest Service man with a Geiger counter detected radiation on Mike and Alan's work helmets, but that was all. Now, I've also heard that the Geiger counter picked up high radiation in the area of the spacecraft, but that was only from one of the crewmen and it wasn't documented anywhere. The next afternoon, after searching, Sheriff Gillespie called off the search. Deputy Glenn Flake paid Mike a visit and asked if they were serious about taking a lie detector test. They said they were, and were scheduled to take one Monday morning. Saturday morning, Mike and Duane went and asked Sheriff Gillespie to renew the search. Maybe they missed him. Maybe he's still out there. Finally, the sheriff agreed and brought in men on horseback, helicopters, and fixed-wing aircraft so they would widen the search. Gillespie tried very hard not to let out the story of the UFO, but it got out, and it spread quickly. Soon, there were UFO hunters and reporters from as far away as London, England. One UFO investigator claimed to have found extraordinary electromagnetic readings at the slash pile where the flying saucer hovered. The sheriff's office and the family's phones never stopped ringing. It was turned into a circus. After a massive four-day search, costing $10,000, they found out one thing, where Travis wasn't. That only left one question. Where was Travis? When Monday rolled around, the group had to fight their way through a large crowd of reporters to get to the sheriff's office for their polygraph appointment. They waited at least 25 minutes until the sheriff came and collected them. 
At the end of a long day of testing, Cy Gilson, who conducted the polygraph, told the men that he thought they were all telling the truth. After five days, Travis was dropped off on the road near Heber, where he regained consciousness just as the craft was leaving. He looked up and saw the bottom of the craft hovering for a moment right above him, and then it shot up at impossible speed without making a sound. He got to his feet feeling very weak and stumbled down the road across two bridges to the phone booths by the Exxon station where he called his sister's house. She was the only family member in the vicinity who had a phone. His brother-in-law answered the phone and immediately thought it was a hoax and almost hung up. Travis was able to convince him enough that it was him to keep him on the line and he told Travis that he would send one of his brothers out to get him. When his brother Dwayne picked him up, Travis was a mess. He kept talking about those terrible eyes that kept watching him. He also said if it's past midnight, he must have passed out for a couple of hours because he only remembers being in that thing for about an hour or so, hour and a half. Dwayne looked strangely at him and said, Travis, feel your face. There was a week's worth of growth there. Then he said, You've been gone for five days. The phone company actually informed the sheriff's office that someone had used that phone to call Travis's sister's house, so the sheriff sent a deputy out to dust the phone for fingerprints, and he sent another deputy out to Travis's house to see if he was there. They didn't find Travis's fingerprints in the phone booth, and the other deputy didn't see Travis at the house. Family members wanted him to see a doctor, but not a local doctor. It was still a circus there with the media. William Spaulding, of a small Phoenix-based UFO research group, Ground Saucer Watch, had told Dwayne to contact him if Travis should be found or returned. So they called him. Spaulding directed them to a Dr. Lester Stewart in Phoenix. When they arrived, they discovered that he was a hypnotherapist and not the type of person they were looking for. They went back to Dwayne's house in Phoenix, stopping for a big breakfast on the way because Travis was very hungry. He had lost more than 10 pounds in the last five days. People were starting to hear the story that Travis was back, so Dwayne sent them on a wild goose chase, telling them that Travis was in a hospital in Tucson. Spaulding called and suggested that they meet Dr. J. Allen Hynek. They declined. They were contacted by Coral Lorenzen of APRO, that's the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. APRO sent over two doctors, Dr. Salt and Dr. Candell, to examine Travis at Duane's home. They performed a physical examination there, and they arranged for Travis to go to Dr. Candell's office in the morning for more testing that involved lab tests. That afternoon, the sheriff called and insisted that he meet with Travis so he could close the case. Sheriff Gillespie arrived late that night, and Travis told him the story. He had trouble going through it again because it was such a traumatic experience. Afterward, he told the sheriff that he wanted to take a polygraph test. It was becoming impossible to get any privacy at Duane's house, and because of a relationship between APRO and the National Enquirer, Travis was put up in the Scottsdale Sheridan Inn, under a different name. 
Dr. James Harder, professor of civil engineering at the University of California at Berkeley, paid him a visit and was able to calm Travis quite a bit. The next morning, Travis and Dwayne went to the Department of Public Safety where the polygraph was to take place. Dr. Harder warned that any polygraph taken now so close to the event was bound to come back inconclusive at best. He said the polygraph measures stress, not lies, per se. Travis took the test anyway, and Dr. Harder was right. Travis was too stressed to have an accurate test, so it was scrapped. The Inquirer brought on three psychiatrists, Dr. Warren Gorman, Dr. Jean Rosenbaum, who has testified in court as an expert on polygraphs, and his wife, Dr. Beryl Rosenbaum. They all expressed their opinion that the polygraph test results were meaningless. Dr. Jean Rosenbaum stated in a press release to ABC TV News 3 of Phoenix, Our conclusion, which is absolute, is that this young man is not lying and that there is no collusion involved, no attempt to hoax or collusion of the family or anyone else. There is a rumor around that there's contracts. There are no such contracts, no motivation for a lie. The result of the tests show this is a person who has been going through a kind of life crisis like we all do, for example, a death or divorce or anything of that kind. The results of psychiatric tests and hypnosis show he really believes these things. He is not lying. So what happened to Travis? At first, he was too traumatized to talk about it because he was reliving it. But during hypnosis, he was relaxed enough to talk about it. So here's what happened. When he first gained consciousness, he didn't know where he was. He couldn't focus very well, and the light hurt his eyes. He felt that he was on a table. Then he thought he was hurt and was in the hospital. He tried to remember what happened that put him in the hospital. He started seeing shapes of people around him. He still thought he was in a hospital and maybe was in surgery. Improved, he realized where he was and was surrounded by terrifying faces. These were not human doctors. They were something else. He swung out and struck one, knocking it into another. He didn't hit it hard because he had no strength, but he did notice how soft and light they were. He rolled off the table on the other side and took a defensive stance and grabbed what he could. He did grab a clear tube about 18 inches long with very little weight to it. He tried to break it so it would have a sharp edge, but it wouldn't break. He started waving it wildly and screaming at the entities. There was an exit at the other end of the area, but he would have to go through the aliens to get to it. He describes the creatures much like the alien greys, but the eyes really creeped him out badly. He keeps mentioning their terrifying eyes. With all of his screaming and yelling, they never once said anything to him. They just watched him. The expressions on their faces never changed. Just when he thought that he was going to have to fight his way out, the three creatures turned and left the room. After Travis looked around the room a bit, looking for something used as a weapon, he didn't find anything. He left the room and kind of walked ran down the curving hallway. He saw a door on the inside of a curved hallway and cautiously looked inside. He saw a round room with a 10-foot ceiling. 
there were two other doors inside this room and just a single chair in the middle of the room. It was facing away from Travis. He didn't know if anybody was in the chair, so he carefully eased himself around the room until he could see that the chair was empty. He noticed that when he approached the chair, the room became dimmer and stars appeared as if they were projected through the walls. When he walked away from the chair, the reverse happened. He walked up to the chair, and he fiddled around with the controls, and the stars moved. He did this only twice, and decided it was dangerous. He was standing beside the chair when he heard a sound and turned and saw a human. The human was very muscular and about six feet two. He had a bubble helmet on and was dressed in blue coveralls with black boots and belt. The human beckoned Travis to follow him. The human grabbed Travis's arm and led him out and down the hallway into a very small room, then out the other side of the room. I pictured an elevator here. When they emerged out the other side, they were in a hangar of a much larger craft. There were several other spacecraft in the hangar, and the air was much fresher. It had been humid and stifling before. From there, they entered a larger craft and traveled down a long hallway. He asked the human when would he be able to go home, but received no response. They went into another room that had a table and a chair and three other humans dressed like the escort, except that they weren't wearing helmets. There were two men and one woman. The two men were muscular like the first one. The helmeted human put Travis in a chair and then left the room. Travis tried to talk to the humans. He said, Would someone please tell me what's going on? And what is this place? But he didn't get an answer. Then one of the men and the woman led him to the table in the room. They lifted him onto the table, and the woman suddenly had a clear mask in her hand, similar to an oxygen mask, but without any hoses attached to it. She placed it over Travis's mouth and nose, and Travis was almost instantaneously out. The next thing he remembered was waking up on the road west of Heber, Arizona. So, there are a lot of sites you can visit on the web. You can watch an interview with Travis on YouTube. They came out with this documentary where they interview the team members that are still alive. It's available to rent. Uh, It's called Travis, the True Story of Travis Walton. There are a lot of opinions, too. Here is a story told by Travis with absolutely no proof beyond what his coworkers say. It is a fantastic story. It hasn't been proven to be a hoax either. If you want to dig a little deeper, there's a lot of information out there. It's up to you what you believe. Do you personally have a UFO story? Let me know. You can email me at ufoandaliens at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time.